right, let's take our Bibles this evening and turn, continue in Luke. So turn to Luke chapter 3 as we begin. Just an encouragement, uh, Pastor uh, mentioned this morning, and uh, there was a new birth announcement um, that there's a few few young people that have, a, that have come to know the Lord as their Savior, and so we can even just continue to pray for them. I, I, Pastor actually right now is, is doing another Bible study because he'll be out of town tomorrow, and so uh, he just wants to make sure that, uh, that we continue to pray for all the new birth and for the, the new birth that will come, Lord willing, hopefully, um, as we continue to, to be obedient. And um, so anyway, so just a word of encouragement there. As we're in Luke chapter 3, Pastor Kent has really paved the way for me today to start mentioning Christmas, since he's already bringing up secret Christmas meeting dramas in his announcement time. And I figure I have pretty good authority since stores have been displaying 50% off sales of Christmas merchandise since about September this year. Um, anyway, a few years ago, we put on a, a drama here at Grace that was called The Moon is Always Round, if you remember that particular drama. Um, I was reminded of that a few weeks ago because Stella and I were standing, uh, it was actually after prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, we got out of the car and it was a, a particularly cold, clear night, and the moon was very bright. It seems to be that way on cold, clear nights. There's probably some scientific reason why the, the moon tends to be brighter when it's cold and clear. Well, obviously, clear is obvious. Cold, I'm not so sure about. It could just be me wanting to get inside or something. But Stella asked, uh, where does the rest of the moon go? And I thought that was particularly observant for a four-year-old. And uh, so I called Pastor Mike, who's the science guru. <laughs> no, I said, well, sweetie, and tried to explain it to her in, in terms that I hoped she could understand. And, and because I have a house full of daughters, I thought, well, let's go get a ball. I look for every reason to get balls, you know, in our house, try to incorporate balls however we can. And uh, so I got a ball and a flashlight, and then I tried to demonstrate to her how uh, the moon could be there, but we could only see a certain part of it depending on where the light is shining and depending on where we are. And so I think she got it. You can ask her. I'm not sure. Uh, but the moon is always round, isn't it? And it doesn't really matter what we see, or where the sun is, or where the earth is. That is true. And as we're approaching the Gospel of Luke... Uh, the Gospels, I think, vividly do this for us in the sense that Luke takes out a flashlight and he visit, vividly shines the light on Christ's humanity. Pastor Hobbes has done a good job of giving us an overview of that regard. That doesn't mean that Luke doesn't speak of Christ's deity or Christ's servanthood or, or any of the other aspects of who Christ is, but but from Luke's perspective in particular, we, we see the reality that, that Jesus Christ is, is human, that he is identifying with mankind. And, and so it, it is in, within that light 
this evening that we're going to look particularly in, in Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And so you can turn there with me. And then Jesus' temptation. So we're going to look at his baptism and, and try to understand why in the world did Jesus get baptized anyway? Have you ever wondered that? <laughs> Read that? You're like, why does Jesus need to get baptized? And then what in the world can we learn from the temptations of Jesus Christ? And so Luke is particular in, in his order here, and, and we kind of rearrange things out of order, but, but to follow Luke's order, we see Jesus Christ's baptism, we see the genealogy, and then we see his temptations. And, and I think Luke has an orderliness to his presentation. Um, and if there's nothing else that we can see a common thread through all three of these stories or these ideas is that Jesus is the Son of God that's clearly articulated in verse 22 of Jesus' baptism. God says what? I mean, the heavens open. The voice comes down. He says, this is my son. The genealogy of Jesus Christ as Pastor Hobbes preached last week or the week before, whatever week that was. I'm losing track. But it ends, right, in verse 20, 38. Right? The son of Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. And then twice in Jesus' temptations, the devil appears, appeals to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so while Luke certainly emphasizes the humanity of Jesus Christ, he emphasizes the superior, perfect, obedient Son of God. So we see the the deity of Jesus Christ, the sonship of Jesus Christ in these three instances. But we also see uh, the uniqueness that, that Luke shines onto these episodes in Jesus' life. And that is the, the identity that Jesus has with, with man. John's baptism uh, is obvious in that regard, right? It is the baptism of repentance. Man needs to change. The genealogy is full. As Pastor Havas said, we could essentially preach a life lesson from each of the 77 names that are mentioned in the genealogy. It is full of failures. And it is a constant reminder that no one, no one sits on the throne. <laughs> and then the temptations, they certainly speak of, and we'll get to that hopefully, the past failure. So people see the need for change all around them. That, that was true in Jesus' day, in John's day here. That was true for Israel of old. That is true today, that people see the need for change. Don't you talk to people and they, they say, oh yeah, I need to change. It's, it's kind of like the, the vaping epidemic, right? People see, oh yeah, there's a problem. It's not good. People are dying. But yet, what are they still doing? Why are there still deaths? <laughs> it's because they see the problem and they see the need to change, but they are just, at the end of the day, incapable of change. Certainly the kind of change that Jesus speaks of, that John, in, in his baptism, is pointing to. 
And so the need for change is obvious. But the problem is we, as, a, as people, reject the one who can change us. Isn't that the issue? The issue isn't, oh yeah, I need to change. That's an obvious issue for if you're living, if you're breathing. But the, the greater issue is what people do with the one that can change them. It's true in John's day. It is true in our day today. It is not enough that people want to change. We must change in Jesus Christ. And that's my simple proposition tonight, to, to bring these two ideas, these two episodes of Jesus' life together. It is not enough just to, to want to change. We must change in Jesus Christ. And we're going to try to, to, to articulate as best as we can through these episodes why it's in, what, what that change in Jesus Christ is and why it's so necessary and how it's so different than just the mere assent to needing to change or the mere self drive to change. There's a change that must be brought about through and in the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, the baptism of Jesus teaches us that change occurs because Jesus came. I'm trying to stay simple tonight, right? but hopefully we'll get to some things that, that really we can sink our teeth into, but but. What does the baptism of Jesus Christ represent? Well, in all of its profundity, it simply at least means that Jesus is here. And why is that a big deal? Well, for centuries, God had been silent through the prophets. What is more horrifying than a prophet that is saying, Whoa, whoa. Woe is you. What is more horrifying than a prophet that continually is warning people of their sin? It is silence from God altogether, isn't it? And so, and so remember, Israel is, is used to hearing prophet after prophet come onto the scene and prophet after prophet warning and warning and warning and change and change and change. And then silence. And then silence. Nothing at all. And so the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for God to speak through a prophet again. And as remarkable as it is that Jesus would get baptized in our human understanding of things, and we'll talk about the difference between John's baptism, at least on a, on a light scale, and Jesus' uh, uh, believer's baptism, but isn't it a remarkable thing that Jesus would identify himself with the call to repent from John's baptism? And just as remarkable as it is, it is remarkable that Jesus left heaven to save sinners. And so Jesus came, and he came as a man. John's baptism is all about, at least from Luke's perspective, I'm going to submit to you, all about Jesus identifying with man. I think that's Luke's emphasis. He came as a man. No one else, other, none of the other synoptics, Matthew and Mark, 
none of them have this phrase, now when all the people were baptized. Luke brings the people into the equation. None of the others do. And so only Luke mentions the crowds at Jesus' baptism. This is consistent with Luke's message as a whole, that Jesus is a man, that he cares for those who are even of the social outcasts and, and the second class of humanity. Now, when all the people were baptized, tells us that Jesus is identifying here with man. Then, only Luke also says, when he was, uh, uh, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, verse 21, and while he was praying, none of the other synoptics mentioned the fact that Jesus began to pray. This is unique. It's a model for us. As Jesus, Jesus often does. When he chooses the twelve, he prays. When, when, when it, at the incident of the, the episode of the confession of Peter, he prays. At the transfiguration, he prays. In Gethsemane, he prays. At the crucifixion, he prays. So here, before the Spirit descends and the Father speaks, before the heavens open, he prays. And he models for us the absolute dependence on the Father. So he identifies with man in their need, in their need for something more. Jesus came as a man. Jesus came for sinners. That's the whole reality of John's baptism. Change. Repent. Repent! Repent! Remember, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. That Jesus came for sinners is Luke's emphasis here. He came, if we go back up to what Pastor Hobie preached, um, and we won't, we'll do this only in survey form, in Luke chapter through, 3, he came... Uh, for the tax collector. He came for the outcast. He came for the generation of vipers, John calls them. You brood of snakes. John's baptism is similar to a believer's baptism in several ways. It was an outward declaration. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 makes that very clear that, that this was an, uh, an outward sign of the need for repentance. It was a declaration of repentance here in chapter 3, verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a call to believe. John chapter 1 and verse 7. In our foundations book, we have, right, that illustration that, that, that uh, repentance and faith is, is, are the necessary sides to, to the two-sided coin. Of all the, in all the world, there has never been a one-sided coin. <laughs> and so, faith and repentance is necessary. And John, John calls for faith that we would believe in the light that is to come, he says. But John's baptism is distinct from our, our baptism today, from believer's baptism. John was operating, in, in a sense, underneath the, the Old Testament prophetic sense. 
he was not unlike all the other prophets before him that called for repentance. Right? Repent. There's going to be judgment. Change. But John is unique from the Old Testament prophet in that he has a monopoly on this truth. He says repent like all of them. But then he says, for the kingdom is what? Is at hand. It is near. Only John has that information to add to the message of repentance. And so he does. He does that well. He understands the kingdom is near. It is a proclamation that the king has come because the kingdom is near. He announces that there's another baptism in, in, during Pastor Hobie's, Hobie's sermon in John, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 16. You know, we're, we're kind of befuddled with the reality that Jesus would come and get baptized. And John says that here, right? John answered and said to him, uh, I, I, won't, I won't baptize. Uh, uh, well, actually, this isn't this instance. This is, uh, this is recorded elsewhere. But John says, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandal, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's a totally different kind of baptism. And, and, and thus for us, there's a, there's a believer's baptism that points to that baptism and to the identity that we are in Jesus Christ, that we have died and we have risen again with Jesus Christ. But John's baptism was, was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of faith, but it was a baptism that the king has now come. He was announcing that it was preparatory work, announcing the kingdom. And so there's no question in John's mind that the king is now here, which means that the kingdom is now near at least from John's perspective. Now, this is a whole other sermon, but we understand that, that the kingdom, as, as, as was anticipated, is not ushered in with Jesus Christ's uh, uh, um, incarnation. Things are, are, are delayed or paused as, as, as that's concerned. But the only question now, for John, is since the king is here, and in John's mind, the kingdom is near, what will you, Israel, do with that? Repent. What can you do with that? Repent! He's coming. He's here. The kingdom is near. So John, John's baptism stresses the need for repentance. It's a change of mind, of action. Uh, let's look at verse 7. Pastor Kent preached through this, so we're, we're just going to survey this very quickly. So he began to saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. You need to bear, verse 8, fruit of repentance. The crowds needed the change. They needed to bear the fruit of repentance. Um, this was evidenced 
as John describes it, as, as, as they were questioning, well, then what should we do? Verse 10, he says, if you have two tunics, share with the one who has none. Verse 12, tax collectors, don't, ta don't tax more than what you should tax. Right? Verse 13, verse 14, soldiers, don't use your, your brute force and your, your, your power to take advantage of those. And so there's a life change with true repentance. And so John communicates that. But as we but as we as we kind of plow down now into verse 21, when we saw the when the crowds were there being baptized, when Jesus was baptized, when he was praying in the in the heavens open, we see that Jesus came as a man, that he came for the very ones whom John is is, is calling for repentance. And lastly, he came to save. He came to save. And that is, in verse 22, we see that, I believe. So not only did he came as a man to identify with men, not only did he come for sinners, but he came to save. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So we see two aspects to who Jesus is as Luke presents him. And really as the episode of baptism shows us. We see the kingly reality of who Jesus Christ is here. And we see the Son reality. And so first, Jesus came, he came and he's able to save because he is the promised king. He is the promised king. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. This is the, the public manifestation, uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Luke describes it uniquely here. He says the Holy Spirit came in bodily form. Not a body, but in bodily form. Something distinct. Something that you can see. And so he's emphasizing the historical reality, the public nature. This wasn't just some vision. This was a real event with eyes that could see the Spirit coming in bodily form. This has everything to do with Jesus Christ's right to be king, and I'll explain that in a second, but his right to be king. The Old Testament often, there was a theocratic anointing. And this theocratic anointing uh, was to demonstrate the reality that this person had the authority to be king. And so I don't think it's out of the, the realm here to understand that the Spirit comes and He doesn't come to empower Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is already fully God, just like the Son doesn't adopt Jesus Christ here. Jesus Christ has always been the Son, but Jesus Christ is publicly announced as the reigning King, the promised King, the King that will come. And that is significant. Because only he can save his people. 
from their sins. It is the Holy Spirit that gives a picture to that reality, a public pronunciation, a, a, a proclamation that Christ is the rightful king. Some have speculated figures here, like, well, this is like Noah's dove that ends judgment and is a picture of grace. And that would certainly fit in terms of the context, at least the, the judgment and the, and the grace at some level, but we have no basis for that. And so that won't preach, as it were. What is certain is that Luke and the other synoptics here portray the Spirit's descent like a dove in bodily form. In other words, it's something that can be articulated. While I don't understand it, while I don't understand exactly what the Spirit looks like, it came down in bodily form and was like a dove descending. It's a concrete picture it's the author's way of describing something that is hard to describe, hard to understand. Try describing the sunset to Pastor Mike, who's colorblind. You can't see the shades of red and the beauty of it. Or describe to our friends your favorite, you know, your, your, a, a, mo a movement in Mozart. How, how do you describe to our friends over here who cannot hear the, the beauty of what you're hearing? Well, you do the best you can with what you got. And so Luke describes the Spirit's descent like a dove. But make no mistake about it, he records in simple, plain, concrete terms the historicity of the baptism of Jesus Christ. And it is for our encouragement today. And how is that so? Well, briefly, I want to look at John chapter 16. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn there for a second. We see that Christ's ministry is publicly announced, as it were, at, at John's baptism. And is authenticated, his kingly Rule in his kingly reign, his office is authenticated with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 12, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he says to his disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Verse 12, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what, he, what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. <laughs> Jesus repeats it. You think it's important? What is Jesus saying? Well, there's a few couple aha things here, I think, for us. First of all, the Gospels, and now hear me, the Gospels are not the full record of, uh, of all that we need to know about Jesus Christ. They are not the full record. They are an accurate record, but they are not the full record. 
Jesus himself says, I have many more things to say to you that he doesn't say. But his disciples can't bear them right now. What's Jesus' solution? Just leave them in the dark? Let the rest of the, the church saints kind of just fight for themselves on what Jesus should have told us? No, my friends. He says, the spirit of truth will come and he will guide you. He will give to you all the truth. And so the spirit is sent by the Son and the Father. It's clear in this passage. But by the Son to articulate what Jesus wants to ultimately tell the church. His disciples at that moment do not know all that eventually, in terms of progressive revelation, we are to know as the church. So the Holy Spirit will guide into all truth the Holy Spirit's ministry is from Christ. He will take of mine and will disclose it to you, Jesus says. So Christ is talking about the epistles that will be to come. Of Paul, of James, of Peter. And so, while we didn't witness like, like some of the, those who were there, at John's baptism, while we did not witness this firsthand or, or hear it recounted for us, we did not see the Spirit of God descending like a dove or hear the, the Father's voice from heaven. We didn't witness Jesus' miracles. We didn't sit at his feet for instruction. We weren't comforted and challenged when our faith weaned or when we failed. But we have something more. Something more. I believe that. More than seeing Jesus in bodily form. More than Jesus taking us by the hand. We have something more. John, uh, Jesus says in that same chapter, a little bit ahead, earlier, he says, but I tell you the truth, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if you do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We may not see Christ. We may not be able to hold his hand and, and hear his words and be comforted by his, his presence and his power and his authority. But we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit whom the Son sent for us. We have the Spirit that Jesus to our advantage and, and the Father to our advantage sends to guide us to all truth, to, uh, to indwell with us, to comfort us, to convict us, to assure us, to gift us, to illumine us. The works of the Spirit are many and they are personal to us. His personal ministry continues to each one of us every time we need his ministry. My friends, 
John's baptism demonstrates that Jesus is king. His baptism demonstrates that only this king can save. And this king is anointed, in a sense, by the Spirit, but sends the Spirit out for you and for me. And so this, this public descent of the Spirit of Jesus Christ as King is one of two aspects that we see. Jesus is the promised King that can save, but Jesus is also the promised Son that came to save. So while we see the Spirit descending like the dove, we, we, we hear with Luke the voice that comes out of heaven, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. A public pronouncement or announcement of the Father, just like the, the public, uh, uh, I don't want to really use the word anointing because that can, that can have a couple other realities to it, but the, the public presence or the or, or the, or the uh, authentication of, of the Spirit to the, to the King. So we have the public announcement of the Father to the Son. Let's just go there real quickly. Exodus chapter 4. If you could just page there. God identifies Israel as his son. In chapter 4, verse 22, it's recorded for us, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is uh, the Father, the Father God speaking to Moses here, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. My firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So it's pretty personal. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's about as personal as you get. But Israel is, as a nation, is God's son. Yet centuries later, Isaiah describes the rebellious. Sonship. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah chapter 1. We looked at some of these verses in our overview to Isaiah. Isaiah 1 verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up. He's talking to Israel. But they, or Judah, I think specifically, if my memory serves me correct in this passage. Sons I have reared and brought up but they have revolted, they have rebelled against me. Rebellious sons. An ox knows its owner, a donkey, its master's, main, uh, its master's manager. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Here it is again. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. 
This is a rebellious teenager that left the house. This is a son that is estranged from the father. Yet Isaiah brings up another son. A son of hope. A son that will come, and he too is called Israel. But this son will not be rebellious. And in fact, Isaiah 49, verse 3, describes him as the perfect servant. The son who will do the will of the father. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. Jesus is the perfect son. Jesus is the obedient son. Jesus is the promised son. That's John's baptism. You are my beloved son. You, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. What does the baptism of Christ teach us? From our perspective, it reminds us that we need to change. It was a baptism, excuse me, the baptism of John, here the episode of Christ's baptism. It, it teaches us that we need to change. It teaches us that only Jesus can change us as the promised king, as the promised son, as the one who identifies with man, but yet can save man from their sin, and only he can. And after centuries of silence, God speaks and says, listen to my beloved son. This is my son. We need to change to be like this son. This is the force of John's baptism here. Don't you want to hear those same words? This is my son. This is who I am pleased with. Those are the words we long to hear. Those are the words that will speak to us eternal life, life forever. Those are the words that are life or death. And only those words are spoken to those who are in His Son, to those who have been adopted into God's family as a son with the righteousness that only the Son gives. And so... One at least nugget, gem that we can take away is that Jesus provides all that for us. Jesus provides the truth that one day we will hear. Well done. Well done. You are in me as the obedient, perfect son. And so change occurs because Jesus Christ came. And he came to identify. He came to save. 
And change occurs because Jesus conquered. We're going to look very briefly at this reality tonight. So let's move past the genealogy to chapter 4. As we wrap up, let's read the temptations of Jesus Christ. We're going to make a few applications and then we'll close. But we desperately need, my friends, to change. But it's not enough to just change by, by mere self-help. It's not enough to change or just to know to change. We need to change to be in Jesus Christ. And so the episode of the temptation further elucidates the reality that only Jesus can please the Father. Only Jesus can give eternal life. And it is because Jesus conquers that we too will be conquerors, just like it's only because Jesus is the perfect son that you and I in him can be the perfect son. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I will or I wish. Therefore, you worship before me. It shall be all. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So as we look at this episode through particularly the lens of, of Luke, I want to understand two simple concepts here. First of all, Jesus conquered, and he demonstrates that God's word is sufficient. God's word is su sufficient. And then we'll see that God's word is sole authority. How do we conquer? How does Jesus conquer? Well, he relies on God's word. Now, make no mistake about it. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned, nor could he ever sin. But it was real temptation. It was real temptation. In fact, uh, here we're told that, that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, verse 1. And in verse 2, for 40 days being tempted, not by the Spirit, he was tempted by the devil. That's clear. And James makes that clear as well. But the Spirit allows it, doesn't it? In fact, the Spirit uh, 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 took him. 
and led him in the wilderness. And, and the Spirit apparently had Jesus on a fasting diet here for 40 days. He, he fasted for 40 days. He ate, he ate nothing. Uh, common terminology for a fast. And when those days ended, he was hungry. Yeah. That's Luke identifying with humanity right there. Right, Pastor Steve? We haven't had dinner yet. Yeah. We're hungry. Well, the, the number 40, and, and I'm not big into numbers, but there is a parallelism here. The number, I'm big into numbers when the Bible is big into numbers, right? And we ought to be. The number 40 often goes along with suffering. Think about the 40s in the Bible. Think about the clear allusion here. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Not years, but days. So there's, there's certainly a parallelism here, isn't there? And so Jesus is in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days. The flood lasted for 40 days and nights. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Ezekiel must bear the iniquity of Judah for 40 days. Offenders in Deuteronomy chapter 25 received 40 lashings as a maximum. 40 is not a happy number, as anybody who has gone over the hill can attest. <laughs> right? Just, just fits. Luke's identifying with humanity once again. Go Luke. It's probably eisegesis and not exegesis. So let's strike that one from the record, okay? But nonetheless, Pastor Steve gives the examples of how not to preach. Nonetheless, the number 40 is a significant number. The fact that Jesus is in the wilderness is a significant reality here. Jesus is suffering. He's hungry. He has fasted for 40 days. But yet... He still, he, 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 uh, God's word is sufficient through his suffering. God's word is sufficient through his suffering. And so, like us, Jesus can identify with suffering. Some of us are going through tremendous trials and ordeals. And it is not easy. But Jesus shows us the way to conquer he shows us the way to conquer. And so it is, it is sufficient to lean on the word of God. It is sufficient that God reveals his will or what we need to know about his will through the word of God. What's interesting is the devil doesn't argue with God's, uh, with the son's uh, sonship. He says, if you are the son of God and I don't want to get into the grammar here, but the grammar uh, presupposes, uh, the devil is presupposing here that, yeah, you are the Son of God, so since you are, do this. Go ahead. You can do it. You're the Son of God. Go ahead. But Jesus relies on the sufficiency of God's word and, and at least models it for us in the, in the, in the verses to come, but, but the reality that God's word gives us at least a clear enough picture of God's will for our life. 
We don't have to walk around aimlessly. We don't have to walk around wondering if that in my suffering I'll know what to do. Because the will of God has been revealed from heaven. (laughs) And for us, we can hold it and meditate on it and pray over it. For here, for it, for us, for here, the Spirit of God led, and that's that's sovereign will enough for Jesus. But he also addresses it in the temptation itself. Right? The devil says, okay, turn the stone to bread. You're hungry. Um, hey, you can have the whole world. I, I get to have power over this thing for a while. And, and what the devil says is true. He does have power. And he says, you know, just worship me. Just a tiny little thing. Worship me and you can have it. Third temptation. Hey, cast yourself out here. Kind of do a a, a, a jump, if you will, without a parachute, and, and man, have the angels come and save you. But Jesus says in all his, his responses, no, this is the will of God. And here it is. God said it. It's recorded in the Word. Each time Jesus says the Word of God, he's He's leaning. He's not merely quoting scripture here, but he's leaning on the very reality that this is God's will for my life. <laughs> Can't take that home and, and use it today, can we? That the word is enough. It's sufficient, and it reveals God's will. It reveals God's will. And so, secondly, Tonight, Jesus demonstrates the way, the way of conquering through the Word because He relies on the Word as sole authority. Christ is bound, bound by Scripture. The devil merely quotes it. Right? I mean, man, can you... Can, can you live up to the angel of light name any more than that, Satan? Quoting scripture to try to get the son? Quoting the father's words to try to get the son to go against the father? Talk about how not to use scripture. But Christ is bound by scripture where merely the devil just quotes it. And so the devil knows the Bible. That's an interesting observation. He knows the Word of God. He quotes here Psalm 91, but he uses it for, its own, for his own purposes. He's the misrepresenter, after all, and in fact, Satan is not, the term Satan is not used. It is the devil, Diabolos, the misrepresenter, the slanderer, Paul describes him as the angel of light. He parades around claiming to have power but doesn't have ultimate authority. He has twists, turns, misrepresentations all to try to get his own way. As I mentioned, there's a parallel here to Israel's testing in the wilderness. 
They're both in the wilderness, Jesus and Israel. They're both about obedience. They both share the element of hunger. They both are, are, are in the wilderness for 40 days, years. There's also a, a, a distinct, perhaps parallel and contrast here to the, the reality of, of Satan directly tempting Adam and Eve. If you think about it. He comes in. He says, Eve, is this what God really said? Trying to take God's words again and twist them. Take God's words again and misrepresent them. Take God's words again and get his selfish way through them. But unlike this situation, Adam and Eve had it perfect. <laughs> right? I mean, literally. Perfect. No hunger, no problems in the garden, God's presence, right? And yet, they listened. And they fell. And they disobeyed. The most distinctive elements of Luke's temptation narrative is that he switches the devil's two, uh, second and third temptation from that of Matthew's account. And he ends the last temptation with Jesus on the wing of, of the temple of Jerusalem and saying, Jesus, throw yourself down. The angels will save you. And then he quotes Psalm 91. And, and in Luke's fashion here, I believe he rearranges the temptations because Jerusalem, all throughout Luke's book, is the focal point. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the epicenter of what is going to happen. And so you have Jesus beginning his context in the Roman Empire and, 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 and Jesus' ministry in Galilee and then in Samaria and then Judea, right? And then you have Jesus and the cross work, the gospel epicenter, in Jerusalem. And then what does Luke do in Acts with the gospel epicenter? He takes it from Jerusalem and then he moves it, right? We know Acts 1-8, to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the rest of the Gentiles and to the known world. And so there's a chiastic structure in Luke's writings and men have recognized that and and I think that tip, Luke kind of shines a little bit of the light here onto the reality that Jesus, as a man, has a mission. And that mission is the gospel. And Luke's unique contribution of these two passages, that is the baptism of Christ and the temptation, we see that Jesus is the Son of God and he is superior in every way. His, his baptism demonstrates that, that not just any change will do, my friends. Not just any words will make it. We need a sufficient change. We need a change to be just like 
him. We need those same words, well done, faithful servant, faithful son. We need those words to be true of us, and those words can only be true if we're in him, in the perfect son, in the son where the heavens open and the voice from heaven comes down and says, this is the one that I'm pleased with, and only him, because he is the only perfect son. Temptation demonstrates that knowledge alone can be very dangerous. We need transformed hearts, hearts that are transformed through him, hearts that conquer. It's not just enough to change. We must change in Jesus Christ. We must change in him. And so Luke presents for us a very full reality of who Jesus is. He's willing to be baptized, and through that baptism, he's recognized as the superior son. He's willing to be led in the wilderness, and through those temptations, he demonstrates he is the superior son. So what have you done with the superior Son of God? And as we kind of turn the corner in these accounts of John's baptism, of repentance, of Jesus demonstrating his repentance, of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the temptations, what kind of change has been demonstrated in your life? Is it change that is in him? That is identified with him? That's, I think, what the Lord has for us this evening. That, hopefully, is what we'll take as we wrap up this these episodes of Luke's account of Jesus' launch into his ministry. Father, tonight we pray that you would help us to recognize Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his superiorness, that he is the very Son of of God, one who conquers, the one who affects change, the one whom you, you look at and you say, this one, this is the one I'm well pleased with. And we're thankful tonight that we have ability to approach you through this well-pleasing son. And we pray that we would follow after him and love him and love for him to continue to change us through the agent of the spirit in our lives, through the word of God, that we would be like him and that you would speak to us I'm well pleased in you.
my son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.